0: You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes we will be discussing Stanley Kubrick and 2001 A Space Odyssey, so you don't have to.
1: Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Matt.
0: Hi, I'm Lee. And it is the, well, on the 15th of May, it was the 50th birthday of the UK premiere of 2001, A Space Odyssey. And so, this week, all thoughts of Doctor Who go to one side. Mm, probably. Well, <laughs> While we discuss 2001. And, well, probably all of Stanley Kubrick's films. I reckon we should do 10 minutes on the films that he did before, and then 10 minutes on the films he did afterwards.
2: Either side of talking about 2001. So that's a 20 minute diatribe from you then. And then we'll just interject (laughs) with 2001 stuff. Well surely everybody here must have seen seen the majority of Stanley Kubrick's films. I expect we probably have actually. Yeah. What was quite amusing is when you said, about you know, this is a Blue Box podcast, you'll listen to Stanley Kubrick, 2001 Special Odyssey. Right at the end of that, I don't know if you caught it on your microphone, but somebody flushed the toilet. I just thought, I wonder if that's present. It's probably a Stargate opening up
3: somewhere, <laughs> in, the, somewhere <laughs> in the house, flushing away a
0: Kubrick. Yeah. Fly Blimey. Well, does that, okay,
1: let's <laughs> so, just go through them. one that's by the one. Level <laughs> I'm at at the moment. Yeah. You need to bring me up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to learn. No, you probably know more than you think. Maybe. I'm probably more aware of his films than I have actually seen them, if I'm honest. Well, let's go through them one by
0: one. And let's not do a history, but let's just... I'll name the films in order, and we'll just say whether we've seen it, whether we we liked it, what we thought. whatever. we talked about the short films at the beginning? No. (laughs)
3: I've seen seen
0: the one about (laughs) the boats. (laughs) The Seafarers. Yes.
3: And the one about the um, the day of the fight? No, no, the uh, the flying uh, padre captain. Yeah,
0: flying padre. Yeah.
3: What are these? Are these are these films? Because he worked, before, he worked as a sort of docu- he, documentary maker. He was a photographer,
0: and he wanted to get into films, so he made three short B support features, mm. which were three documentaries. Two of them were ten minutes, and one of them was half an hour, actually that went out, you know, ahead of um, the main feature back in the 1950s. <coughs> and while he was doing this, he also borrowed some money and made two features entirely independently on his own. And I've got to say, I consider those more like something like Spielberg's home movies or maybe Spielberg's TV movies the one of than proper features.
3: Pretty good, though. There's Killer's Kids. Like uh, no, I'm too keen. Spirit Design the? Is that the one that's a bit like Rambo? Yeah, yeah, that one's quite good. They're
0: both good. Yeah, I haven't but, seen the other one. But they're not anything like the level oh, of right. professionalism.
2: And these are documentaries that would have no, no, no. no these are we're features. talking about his first two so, features oh, now. Okay, right.
0: He's, he made three short documentaries, and while he was doing the three short documentaries, he also did two features that he self-financed <clears> that <throat> didn't have. Well, the first one didn't have a distribution deal. The second, the, in fact, there's an interesting story about the first one. The first one didn't have a distribution deal, only four prints of it were made, or only four prints of it survived. Mm-hmm. So it got shown in like a couple of cinemas and was seen by probably a few hundred, few thousand people, whatever. But Kubrick owned the rights to it in the UK and America. And one of these four prints was sold to, I don't know, a collector in Germany or Italy or somewhere. Mm. And after Kubrick died, the the person who owned the print struck a deal with some DVD production company in Italy or whatever. And so this this film that's so rare that nobody had ever seen it. It had never been shown on telly, never been repeated in the cinema since 1953 when it came out. All of a sudden was available on um, region three DVD in Italy or Germany or somewhere, being imported all over the world. So you can pick it up for a tenner now. It's on Blu ray now as
3: well. Is it any good? <clears throat>
0: yeah, it's okay. Right.
3: <clears throat> there's a similar George Lucas made a similar one, I think. Well George Lucas did Quite Dementia thirteen. Is that what you're thinking of? No, there's a short there's a very, very short, short George Lucas. Oh, okay. And that's again Oh, no, no, I'm people, thinking of Coppola with people, people running around the forest. Oh, and it right. feels very similar. Yeah,
0: and yeah. Spielberg did. His is feature length. Yeah. Um, his was eventually he readapted it into Close Encounters. Yeah, it's
3: Fire, fire Light or something like that. Yeah, something <laughs> like that, yeah.
0: And that, I think that's about 90 minutes long. But essentially it's the same thing. Kubrick's, all the sound is post dubbed on afterwards. Um. Apparently, the entire script is written in blank verse. Mm-hmm. I, having seen it, <laughs> I would not swear to that being the case, because you don't get any impression of that from watching it, that it's all written in blank verse. But apparently it was. Maybe that was one of these urban myths from before anybody had actually seen it. Mm-hmm. It was okay. Then Killers Kiss, he did afterwards, which is pretty much the same, but he got a small distribution deal for it killer's kiss again was all post dubbed on sound afterwards was about a boxer who falls in love with the he he lives in a tenement block falls in love with a woman who lives in the or falls in love at sight with the woman who lives in the flat opposite him the apartment opposite him in the next block along um sees her being beaten up by her boyfriend Realises her boyfriend's a gangster and there's a story about him rescuing her from the gangsters, etc. It's quite a good film. It's not, again, it's not anything like the level of professionalism that he'd bring to his work once he got some money. Mm. But his first proper film, and this is really his first film as I consider it, to be honest, is The Killing. Has anybody seen The Killing? No. No. Matt? No. Okay, right. So, no. the killing—he optioned the rights to a book, the name of which escapes me, and I've got—I you know, used to know all this stuff like the back of my hand, but
2: shame these days most
0: it. of it's gone. It's a shame you didn't
2: do any research before coming
0: out, why, didn't? It? Well, I've got a Stanley Kubrick <laughs> guide, but I'm not prepared to pick it up and start <laughs> flicking through just. A, he optioned a book called *The Killing*. Oh, and least just picked it up and lost my page. Oh right, okay. <laughs> brilliant. It's a lot of pages. <laughs> it is, and that's why I propped it open at right. the guide. Okay. Anyway, I he optioned. For it. What do you want me to
2: look for? What are you talking?
0: No, 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 it doesn't matter.
2: Okay. People,
0: people will well, either this is know why we or have not. On the podcast. Yeah. I'm a librarian. I can find these things. <laughs> He's a librarian. I thought you we were going to say I'm a liability <laughs> there. <laughs> he optioned a book. The point with books is, in books, you'll often get flashbacks or you'll get stories told from different perspectives. But when people adapt that to the screen, they tend to chronologise it, or it's either chronological with flashbacks. Mm. But what Stanley Kubrick did with The Killing was, The Killing is the story of a, um, like a heist on um, the money from a big race. So somebody puts a team together to rob the race course and run off with the money. And it's the story of how the team gets put together. But instead of... <laughs> You've got this really weird expression on your face, This It just sounds really good. <laughs> well, instead of telling the story, story chronologically, he tells the story of each of the team members, one after the other, right. up to the point at which the robbery takes place. So the entire thing is out of sequence,
1: which is the structure that... Pulp Fiction and mm. Tarantino. Oh, yeah, Tarantino
0: admits that he stole the structure of Reservoir Dogs, etc., from The Killing. So this is okay. where Reservoir Dogs came from. So if you like Reservoir Dogs, chances are you'd like The Killing. Mm. But it is an exceptional film. It's a 10 out of 10 classic, really. And it's filled with great actors, too. Um, what, what era? What year was this? We're talking mid-50s still. Wow, 56. After that, he did Pass of Glory. Anybody seen Pass of Glory? Not
2: oh, yet. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, no,
0: no, no. Pass of Glory is where Stanley Kubrick with his long tracking shots come in. It's where, you know, the West Wing and the whole, um, what's the name of the um, director on the West Wing? Who...
3: Um, Tommy
0: Schlammy. That's right. And Tommy Shlammy <clears throat> took all that there is in the West Wing and that from Pass of Glory. <laughs> Pass of Glory is a... Based on a novel about the French army in the First World War, it's about a general who wants to take this German <clears throat> um, base called the Ant Hill and he just decides to throw as many French soldiers at it as he possibly can. So he organises this big assault. And there's supposed to be an air barrage before the assault, but due to miscommunications, the assault is due to take place at o six hundred. The air barrage is supposed to finish at 0559, but the air air barrage finishes at 0550. So the Germans have got 10 minutes to... And nobody sends the troops in early when the barrage finishes because, you know, you follow the rules. So the Germans refill the trenches. The French attempt to take it and just get absolutely massacred. Mm. Michael Douglas... Plays a captain who had to send his troops over, and his troops didn't make it because halfway across, he said, "This is stupid. This is a massacre," and sent them back. Kirk Douglas. The f- Kirk Douglas. What did I say? Michael Douglas. I mean, did I? I think so? Oh, okay. <clears throat> Kirk Douglas. I it was anyway, like
1: Bugsy Malone for a minute.
0: Kirk Douglas then gets told that he has to present, and this, this is the way they do it: three soldiers who are going to be tried and executed for cowardice. Rather than the whole platoon, or rather than just one, they arbitrarily choose three. So Kirk Douglas has to go to his men, pick three of them out. Can you imagine what it's like picking out three men to be summarily executed? And then the rest of the film, the majority of the film, Mm -hmm. follows the trial, which is um, a farce, and then follows these men over the 24 hours between the end of the trial and their execution the next day and then it finishes with um the uh, it's adolf menjou who plays the um general who sets all this up and he comes af- afterwards after the three you, you see the executions it's absolutely shocking stuff mm. adolf menjou comes to him afterwards and he says uh Because obviously Kirk Douglas has also been protesting all of this all along the way. And he says, you've played this very well politically. I take it you're angling for a promotion? Well, I'm here to give you your promotion. And Kirk Douglas basically just tells him to F off. And it was banned in France for 25 years. It is one of the great movies of all time. I recommend anybody go and see It hasn't dated a second in the meantime. Because this is probably the first example of Stanley Kubrick. I mean, there's some of this in The Killing, and there's a little bit of this in his first two films, but Stanley Kubrick doesn't use the rule book. Mm -hmm. So there's certain grammar of filmmaking that you're supposed to use to that may help the audience understand what's going on. And Stanley Kubrick doesn't use any of it. He starts as a photographer, And he's interested in telling stories, but he's not interested in explaining them. Yeah. No, he's no, no, not, no, the, not over-explaining them. I mean, no, no, no. The, I'm not talking about the the, the dialogue and the script. Right. I'm talking about the camera work. Mm. It's like if you have two people in a conversation, you'll and you want close-ups of both of them. In one close-up, one will be facing left to right, and in the other close-up, the other will be facing right to left. And most Scenes will start with an establishing shot and then go into the close-ups and then pull back to mid-shots with both before going back into close-ups, depending on the dialogue and what's being said, and various things like this. Kubrick doesn't do any of this. If he wants to do a dialogue scene, there's no establishing shot. He just puts the camera on the people who mm. are talking and leaves it there while they talk. So he completely throws the cinema gr- grammar rule book out the window And makes films, therefore, that are completely timeless because they don't follow either the rules of or they don't follow the fashions of Mm. the rest of cinema that's around at the time. Passive Glory also was one of the films that Kirk Douglas made when he was trying Mm. to escape from the studio system where stars would be attached to studios and they'd have handcuffed deals with the studios and wouldn't be able to... So Kirk Douglas was one of the people who was helping to set up mm. United Artists. And this is when actors were free to go and make films for whomever they chose. So Passive Glory was also quite an important film in that respect. Next up is Spartacus. Anybody? Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've seen Spartacus. <clears throat>
0: right, Stanley Kubrick <coughs> was going to make One-Eyed Jacks, a western, it would have been his only western, with Marlon Brando in the lead. But everything wasn't going quite right on One-Eyed Jacks. So in the end, Kubrick left One-Eyed Jacks and Marlon Brando took over and directed it himself. But from a lot of Stanley Kubrick's notes, I guess. So if you watch One-Eyed Jacks, it's slightly a little bit like a Stanley Kubrick film, de facto, sort of as it were. But Douglas Mann was on Spartacus, but he wasn't doing the job that the studio wanted. So after a week's filming, or something like that, two weeks filming, they got rid of him. Stanley Kubrick had just become free. Kirk Douglas was the star in Spartacus, and he said, well, why don't we use Kubrick instead? So Kubrick came in. What does anybody think of Spartacus?
2: I loved him, But I can't pick anything out of that film unless you remind me. That's very <clears throat> Kubrickish. It no, it's not quite, a very Kubricky film. No, it just felt like a big sandals and epic film. Thing. The one thing in it, sandals and epic, sandals the one and and <laughs> swords and sandals, <laughs> swords and all. sandals, and, yeah, not a caravanning film.
0: The one thing that's in it that I think he maybe emphasises, but there was already in the script because it's a uh, Dalton Trumbo. Yeah, who would a what? Who, Dalton Trumbo, who was blacklisted because of the anti communist witch hunt. And Kubrick brings the politics Mm. out of the script perhaps slightly more than other directors may have done, although it's hard to say because it's Mm. all there in the script. But Kirk Douglas again, at the end of this, Dalton Trumbo was taken on on the understanding that his name wouldn't be attached to the movie because nobody must know he wrote it. Kirk Douglas, once the movie was finished, insisted on having Dalton Trumbo's name on the film. And that's what broke the blacklist.
3: But didn't didn't Kubrick actually put his name on it instead? There was a moment to start with that, and Dalton Trumbo didn't get his name on it for quite a long time.
0: Uh, This was prior to its release. It was released with Trumbo's name on it. Okay. Okay. But Trumbo's name wasn't supposed to be on it, so Kubrick's name was going to be on it instead.
3: Yeah. I think there was some sort of controversy about that from from Trumbo, but I can't remember.
0: Well, Trumbo did the film on the understanding his name wouldn't be on it. So I think the controversy might be one of... I think the controversy might be one of these after-the-fact controversies. Because right. the understanding was his name wouldn't be on it. And then Kirk D- Douglas insisted. Mm. Hmm. But I don't think it was the happiest of movies for all of them. And it certainly wasn't for Kubrick, and he never again made a film as a director for hire. The next thing he did was Lolita. Mm-hmm. Anybody? Yes. Classic, again. <laughs> the The thing about all these films is... He's making these films for, I don't know, I think The Killing was $350,000. And then it went on and made several times that. Lolita and the one that came afterwards, Dr. Strangelove, mm. were both made for $2 million and made about ten at the box office. So all these films, they're not making massive, massive amounts, but they're all making back several times what they cost to make. So by the time you get to Lolita and Dr. Strangelove, Kubrick already has a reputation somebody let him do what he wants to do, because he will make you money. He's an artist, but he's not the kind of artist who makes movies that are difficult to watch. So Lolita is a black comedy. Takes Nabokov's novel and does it relatively faithfully. And a um, massive hit, really, considering the subject matter. That was... Something that was potentially But was it a massive hit because
2: of the subject matter? All
0: Kubrick's yeah. films are massive hits, so mm. <clears throat> I think it's... In, I, d- I don't think it's massive because of the subject matter. They played on it. What year was this? 62. 62, yeah. They play on right. the subject matter, mm. but they play on it in such a way as to, by playing it up, they take the sting out of it. Do you know what I mean? mm, mm. Because films usually are controversial if the controversy follows a promotional campaign that tries to hide the controversial subject matter. But if the promotional campaign thrusts the controversial subject matter in your face, where have the media got to go? Because it's already there, right? The um, strap line for Lolita was however, did they make a movie of Lolita? So, uh, yeah, they weren't hiding it. And that was his first um, collaboration with Peter Sellers. Mm -hmm. In Lolita, Peter Sellers plays one part, but effectively he's playing Mm -hmm. four because the character that he's playing, Quilty, turns up in disguise on... I think it's three occasions throughout the film. So um, Humbert Humbert, James Mason, keeps thinking he's seeing different people and doesn't realise it's the same guy all the time. Because Peter Sellers had done that so successfully there, he comes back and does Strange Love, where he actually plays three different parts. (laughs) So, and this was, I'm not sure, but I think this might have been more or less where it started, where Peter Sellers would have a reputation for coming to your movie and playing several different roles within the movie. <laughs> but he certainly does it in Alita and <coughs> Strangelove. I don't know if he'd done it before that, because he hadn't been
3: not around sure, for not that sure he, long. I'm not sure if he did it that much since, did he?
0: No, but he sort of had a
3: reputation for it. I mean, and that's basically yeah. because of these two yeah. movies. I mean, he's <clears> really doing um, Kind Hearts and Coronets*, So there's a sort of a tradition <clears> of doing <throat> that that yeah. then sellers, sellers picks up.
0: But certainly when I was a kid in the 70s, Peter Sellers was the guy who'd turn up, hmm. and you'd never know...
2: Well, the, the, didn't the, they play up on that in The Pink Panther? Yeah, so The yeah. Pink Panther, he, has, he does disguises. Disguises bad, and stuff, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: <clears throat> so Doctor Strangelove is getting some maf- massive hit. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about Doctor Strangelove <clears throat> is, <clears throat> this is the start of Stanley Kubrick making movies without finishing the script before he starts. And so, Doctor Strangelove. Famously, the ending of Doctor Strangelove was suggested by um, Spike Milligan. So, <laughs> Simon's jaw dropped. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Dr. Doctor Strangelove. Doctor yeah. Strangelove was supposed to end with a custard pie fight in the war room, which they filmed. <laughs> <laughs> if they filmed it, and I don't know whether the film was destroyed or whether it still exists, but
3: I've either seen it or I've seen stills from it. I've probably seen stills. Stills, from I
0: think. It. Yeah. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen the footage, so no, I'm not sure if it's yeah. ever turned. Up well, he's anyway. famous for destroying
3: footage that he doesn't use. Well, um, he he's, or he's yeah. famous for asking for all footage to be destroyed because so that's what he did with 2001, <clears> but, <throat> but didn't. Well, this is the thing. I think he's more. I, there are lots of urban
0: myths about Kubrick, mm. a lot of which aren't true, and I think that's one of those. Or a lot of yeah, which are true. For
3: 2001, it is true because it's based on, because he wrote down the order to destroy because he wanted to stop a sequel from happening oh, based really? on his designs. So he ordered all the stage, the, all the sets, all to be the props, that, yeah. and also all the unused footage to be destroyed, except they didn't destroy the footage, so that's apparently been discovered somewhere. It was discovered 15 years ago. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They just haven't
0: worked out what to do with it yet. No. There's, yeah, 15 years later, and it's still out there. Anyway, yeah, Dr. Strangelove was supposed to finish with a custard pie fight in the war room. <clears throat> and instead, and they filmed it, and he thought, no, this isn't working. So he was fishing around for ideas, and Peter Sellers rings up his mate, Spike Milligan, and tells him what the story of the film is. He says, What do we do? How do we finish it? And it's Spike Milligan. And he says, Well, why don't you put the. Army guy on the bomb as it's going down to earth. And Stanley Kubrick says, brilliant idea. But he have an example of Stanley Kubrick making a film without quite knowing where it's gonna go when he starts it. It's not the end product is not the film necessarily, certainly entirely, that he set out to make. And of course, that is also the story of uh, Channel 4. <laughs> 2001 and space. I was just announcing with a little bit of music that we're at the subject, finally.
3: Uh, and I it, it's even more so with 2001 because they didn't know how the movie was going to start <clears> or end or what, what was going to be in the middle. <laughs> in the middle really. Still I,
2: So I, they filmed I the know. moon sequence and that was about all they had. And they, they were still writing. Did they film the moon sequence first because that's from the original short story, The Sentinel? because it's found on the moon isn't it the well I monolith. think they knew it was going to go
3: in but they didn't know it was a monolith on the moon they thought it was going to be a pyramid on the moon originally yeah of what? But,
2: because of the chariots of the they... gods time yeah. going on. well
0: I, I this was pre-chariots imagine, yeah. of the gods was it? Yes, chariots of the 17th. gods was five years later oh, 73 right.
2: yeah.
0: <clears throat> um, so von yeah. Daniken <laughs> took everything he knew from 2001 a space odyssey very probably but it was obviously a popular idea that was around at the time if von Däniken wrote a book on it, he it's, didn't come
2: up with that entirely no, himself. No, it must be doing the rounds.
0: Yeah. So Kubrick wanted to do the science fiction movie because previously science fiction had been B-movies, mm. apart from, let's say, mm. a couple of H.G. Wells adaptations and not much else that took itself seriously. And even those, by the time you get to the mid-1960s, something like Shape of Things to Come, is like, what, already 30-odd years old by mm. this point? And looking well out of date, even by then. <clears throat> That's the monolith coming. <laughs> it probably won't show up on the audio, so people will wonder what we're talking about. There's a plane going. But yeah, it
2: looks jolly huge.
0: It's too hot to have the windows closed today. Yeah, We're recording it on the hottest day of the year, this one. <laughs> Hence all the slurring and stuff.
2: and the headaches can you see the headaches
0: so the question about 2001 is not so much did any of it come true or how realistic was it but the question is how successful was Kubrick or were Kubrick and Clark in sitting down and making a movie that would still be entertaining would still tell a story but at the same time where the focus is on not going down the route of the B-movie, not doing the standard Hollywood cinema entertainment, amusing whatever things, but doing something... Because, I mean, for me, what you've got with 2001 A Space Odyssey is a film that tips so far over into realism, for want of a better word, that it goes into almost parody. I think... It's not a laugh-out-loud movie, but I think 2001's hilarious. It seems to me that he took Arthur C. Clarke's script and drained it of all personality because he wanted to show what it was like when you were on missions
3: we that dra- are two years long. You drained it of all dialogue. Yeah, st- that's st- what, st- I st- what I mean. Because there's, what, 20 minutes without dialogue to start with? And then the last, <clears throat> what, 40 minutes doesn't have any dialogue as well. And most of the middle. And the middle bit is just banal conversations. Well, and about...
0: even that is punctuated by mm-hmm. long, long five, six, seven-minute sequences between those conversations where, again, there's but, no dialogue. But you
3: were saying that it's not about how well it predicts the future. But actually, I think that is the point. So, so as a story, because it wasn't just Kubrick and Clark; it was Kubrick, Clark, and NASA that made the film. But I think... the whole point was trying to predict. But I think there's a distinction to be made between making a film that's
0: about predicting the future.
4: Mm.
0: And because what I think they did, they didn't make a film to predict the future. They made a film that was going to be set in the future. So they wanted to get that future right. Mm. So it wasn't about predicting the future for the sake of predicting the future, but about predicting the future for the sake of telling a story that's got very similitude, as
1: it were. Exactly. We've got the year on for a start.
2: <laughs>
1: Picky. <Well>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but the the Na- NASA thing is, is quite interesting, isn't it? Because they were, mm. were brought in to... Well, try and guess where we would be Mm. in 2001 with the technology and actually that apart from the uh you know making everything small like microchipping everything i think it was quite close i mean when you look at some of the ideas i think the engines aren't specifically mentioned to be nuclear powered but they are
0: well there's even things like when they have the meeting when um the scientist the first gets yeah. up to the <laughs> base on the moon, and they've got that long bit where they're sitting in the meeting room. The guy who's taking the photographs at the start, he's taking the photographs on what looks like a mobile phone. Yeah, right. Mm. So I yeah, mean, it's skyping,
2: even... skyping conversations. Like yeah,
0: that,
3: that, this was what struck me. They call it telephony, yeah. and it made me realise mm, that actually yeah. one thing you can't predict with the future is the use of language, company, no company yeah. names, oh, yeah, branding. Yeah. Mm. Because we'd say video phone, but we wouldn't say video phone anymore. We'd say, say Skype, Skype, or yeah. we'd say Google. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. Or it's much like
1: people say hoovering the
3: lounge. Yeah, and you can't, predict, that. Brand you can't
2: predict brand names mm. in the future. Mm. Mm. And they used would. the names at the time, which obviously then dated. I think that's the other problem, like Pan Am. <laughs> Plainly, there's no Pan Am in yeah, the future. Yeah. <laughs> that went down uh,
1: pretty badly. But um, It's quite future thinking when they use a gay news reader. Yeah. I suppose. I am being facetious. You slightly. are, aren't you? Yeah. Presumably, yeah. they had to film it's Kenneth, also, Ken- Kenneth Kendall. He's gay, isn't he? I don't know. I've done if that came out. You oh, I may be wrong. You I made might you wrong.
3: Have, <laughs> might just have liable to Kendall Estate now. <laughs> yeah. <I> said, Presumably, <laughs> they had to film the the moon sequences <laughs> early because that's what NASA gave funding for, <laughs> in order for the moon landings to be fakes.
1: Yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so oh, yeah. that he did that
3: just enough to get the f- the rest of the film funded so he could it's sort it. of hide it in the
2: middle of this film. It does do you know what, when you say it like that it makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah it does. Though, yeah. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the flat <clears> Earth <throat> thing would never be discovered. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Do we do we, cool. we like
0: two thousand and one A
2: Space yeah. Odyssey? Two thousand and one A Space Odyssey. Are we gonna do the thing where we first watched it and how we feel about it now? <laughs> I suppose we can do. Because when I first watched it I must have been about thirteen in uh, 83, 84 some of when video, videos were out and about and we got it on video and my <laughs> my dad invited my uncle round and put loads of beers and ciders and it was a bit of a family event because videos were then and then he put in 2,000 months we all sat and watched it and um, and right at the end of the film after the trippy bit my uncle turned around to my dad and said but that wasn't as good as I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I, can kind of under- I can kind of understand it's that. It's so really yeah.
3: brilliant.
0: But, but was... all the reviews at the time said, this has got to be one of the most boring movies ever made. <laughs> some of them. Some yeah, of well, them thought, uh, I mean, Well, no, most of the ones at the time. And then yeah,
2: it was yeah. the reviews that came out afterwards that sort of people were revising their opinions, I think. Yeah. But I think he was probably watching it at the time when, you know, there was quite a few. Um, yeah, but in, he's probably enjoying the trippy bit.
0: And then when you rewatched it on video, you were talking about in the post Star Wars Raiders of the Lost Oh, Art. yeah,
2: totally. I mean, I was, I was watching it and, you know, I enjoyed certain aspects of it. I was 13, 14, so I was a Star Wars kid. And I was more interested in watching Battle Beyond the Stars than 2001. Do you but, know? But it took about four watches throughout the 80s until I actually started understanding what the heck this was trying to
0: achieve. I think I saw it. Anything. I think I saw it before Star Wars. I don't know if I, that's was possible. On TV. I don't know, my memory, it cheating.
1: It had been on TV. It was on TV. I, was, yeah, I saw what? it in the early 80s. There Did was a the, BBC Two sci-fi is that, season. Is that
3: the one where they put it on, but with, with um, tram lines, top and bottom, but they put mm. stars in the tram lines? Huh? Oh, yeah. heard about this? When they <laughs> showed, it, America, on, when they showed it? it on television, I think it was on the BBC. Was it? it yeah, I think they'd, they'd done it. As a sort of a gimmick on BBC.
0: They did it because they weren't used to having the black lines, the black bars, and they thought people wouldn't accept (laughs) the black bars, so they stuck something in the black bars. They're much better at that these days, where they do that sort of ghost thing down the side.
1: (laughs) But I I do remember this insanely good sci-fi season on BBC Two. Mm. They did, and 2001 was the first one. And then it was this would have been on, after Star Wars. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. This Island Earth and More of the Worlds and I some saw, of the real
2: classics. I saw all of those apart from that in that particular season. Mm. Interestingly. But
0: I'm wondering because
2: it was. This Island Earth. Season. It's a
0: 12 certificate now, mm. which might be to do with other content on the disc. But when 2001 first came out <clears throat> on VHS, it was a U certificate. Mm. Well, which is actually quite surprising because there is one quite brutal bit where they kill the beast, the um apes at the start. Ape on ape. Yeah. Yes, the Ape on Ape bit's quite But brutal. then I guess that's that's sort ape of on ape, yeah. the
3: wildlife documentary level of
0: Yeah yeah.
3: Of, I like so. so I'm
0: thinking, just to carry on with my train of thought, I'm yeah. thinking I'm wondering if maybe in the run up to Star Wars they showed two thousand and one as a matinee showing. Maybe. on a Saturday afternoon or something and I saw it then because in my head I swear I'd seen 2001 before I saw Star Wars I just don't know if because um, we're talking 40 years ago so maybe I'm just misremembering but that's how I but remember but how,
2: how did you take to it Jay <clears when throat> first
0: saw it. well at that age I was 8
1: so <laughs> I found it
0: absolutely <laughs> mesmerising from start to finish and whether it was before Star Wars or whether it was after, and maybe I was 10 or something, mm. I was absolutely mesmerized by it because at eight, you're not, no. you're not necessarily watching things for narrative, mm. you're watching things for the sort of Motive. overall
1: effect. Yeah. I certainly knew the soundtrack before I knew the film. We had a vinyl. Oh, really? Yeah, my dad had an yeah. album which was all, it was big, it was one of the first stereo recordings, I'm guessing. Because it was making a big deal of the fact it was all in stereo. So. Oh, the soundtrack might have
0: been, because their mm. recordings they all pre-existed, but mm. the film was in mono.
1: Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Well, I this, s- this
3: vinyl album. I knew the soundtrack before, because I'd been playing Elite on the BBC, <laughs> which is so obviously based on mm. that really slow docking sequence at the start, where they're lining it up. Mm. Except Elite is a bit more
2: sort of, you know... We're talking the BBC micro. Yes. The computer. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Just in case. Anybody? Oh, no, sorry, yeah. under, under the, the age of... <laughs> well, yeah. My
0: favourite bit's the Guyane. Anybody else?
2: <laughs> <laughs> the um, bit... We all know the story of how the music got on there, right? <clears throat> don't know about the story. About how it got on there, no.
0: The fact that it was a temp soundtrack and he decided to keep it. And oh, it, yeah. So... <clears throat> I remember now. So when you edit a film especially in the old days of manual editing, a lot of film editors and film directors use a temp soundtrack just so that they can get some idea of the Mm -hmm. um, relative speed of sequences. And Kubrick had done this with his previous films as well, but he's doing it with 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I think he showed it to somebody, and that person said, oh, I'm glad you're going with this music, because this really works for it. And Kubrick said, oh, right, okay. <laughs> Let's do that then. And meanwhile, Howard Shaw, no, is it Howard Shaw? Howard North. Not Shaw. Shaw's 90s, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Howard North had written a score for it and recorded a score for it that never got used. That was made available on CD in the 90s. Okay.
3: So you can actually buy the Howard North score. He did something similar in The Shining, didn't he? For the Shining. An entire score was made, and then he just rejected it. It was diff- slightly different than The Shining. He just went for, for stock music.
0: Uh, no, because some of The Shining is from The Score. The right. score for The Shining is by, um well, Wendy Carlos by then, who was Walter Carlos. Right. And some of Wendy Carlos' stuff is still in The Shining. Okay.
2: We're not out The Shining yet. No, no, no. all right, Lee. We can talk come
0: about that. It. <laughs> if
2: it's relevant, Lee, we can talk about it. This, is this the not? first time you have ever got to go is it
1: Come on. Is it the first example of um, classical music being used? with I mean, could it could it be argued that it fed through to Star Wars, this whole idea of using classical a classical a... score on, on a science fiction? No, because Things to Come
0: had done it back in the 30s-ish. <clears throat> Things yeah. to Come had a pretty... If, if you listen to the Things to Come soundtrack, the main theme from Things to Come is very much influenced by Mars, by Holst, in the mm-hmm. same way mm-hmm. as um, uh, John Williams is. So, no, yeah. it was, that was something that had been a standard. The 50s it's swung quite, it the other
2: quite, way. Quite a had <clears throat> that. Yes, well. it
0: did, actually, didn't it? The 50s had swung it a different way a bit because they'd started using things like theremins. Mm-hmm. But then, I suppose Kubrick swings it back.
2: Mm. Yeah, that, it'd be a whole different film if it had a theremin going through it, wouldn't it? Hello, yeah. Hal. Could you? Yeah, well, it does have that weird coral bit.
3: Oh, what, is... with
1: the apes at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, well, well, that's well, great. Every time a- the, a- a- the monolith. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it turns oh. up.
3: Yeah.
0: That's and during cool. the shots of the um, shuttle going across the surface of the moon as yeah. well, I think if I remember rightly. But,
2: right. but that, that isn't the whole point. That. Piece of music is so kind of well, it's not necessarily atonal, but it almost is, isn't it? Where yeah. none of the notes are kind of necessarily fitting together very well. It's quite not fun. arranged as a melody, no, it's not arranged as a melody, it's on purpose purposely confusing because it's supposed to indicate that these super beings, panda dimensional super beings in the future, are almost beyond our reach and understanding. I think that's what I took with <laughs> from it when I was 12.
0: Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's Um, And it's not as if Arthur C. Clarke doesn't talk about what the movie's about. So it's not as if... It's not as if the meaning of the movie is any great mystery. Well, you wrote three sequels to it. Yeah. yeah. And there's two sequel films or just one sequel film? One sequel film. Yeah. So it's not as if the meaning of it is any great mystery anymore. Or ever really was, I don't think.
2: People are still debating it. there's
3: There's probably Arthur C. Clarke's... Meaning of the film, and then there's Stanley Kubrick's meaning of the film. But Stanley I, Kubrick's meaning was slightly more reticent than Arthur C. Clarke's. I don't think it was because I think everything that Arthur C.
0: Clarke talks about is up there on screen. Mm-hmm. I think what Kubrick does is he emphasizes different things. So while Arthur C. Clarke is more interested in how the aliens have influenced us, I think Kubrick's more interested in the influence, rather than where it came from. So at the start of the film, you've got the sequences with the apes, which is all about conflict. And then the influence comes in, and it's about how you weaponise that conflict. And then all the stuff with Hal in the middle looks like a sort of irrelevant subplot to the plot that's on either side of it. But again, it's all about Weaponizing conflict as it were because Hal becomes a weapon against man with that's the, a tool that man himself has made so it's about making your, the tools of your own destruction but but
3: it's the reversal so it's the reversal of strange love in a sense because originally 2001 they didn't have an ending so one of the proposed endings <clears throat> was the world gets blown up with nuclear weapons shot from orbit but they decided that was too much like strange, strange love. love. So instead, what you've got is so initially you've got the tool, the sort of weaponizing tools with the end, mm. but actually HAL is weaponized, but then the humans defeat how, yeah, yeah, and then they achieve the next stage. yeah so this, this is the second of the trilogy of 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 kind of what happens in the future that Kubrick made. And it's a more positive one because humans actually achieve Wait, the next yeah. stage of evolution, whereas in, in A Clockwork Strangelove, Orange and Strange Love, yeah. they don't. So yeah, one's yeah. a psychological dead end and one's
2: a, a technological dead end. And this is why this film is so incredible, because of all the, the wonderful levels that you get from it's, it, but it's, it's really dull. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not. It's dull. Do you not like it? It's um, not dull. Well, it is dull. Well, I haven't said not, that yet. No, <laughs> um, no not, it is. It is. When I was enough.
3: young, when I was young, I liked bits of it. I really liked the the human zoo, the 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 hotel bit at the end. I found that really creepy. Uh, where Bowman is, Bowman yeah. is tra- trapped in this room and slowly evolving. That that freaked me out. I but, think, did you, but did you know at the time, or did you think at the time, that he was being watched? No, I didn't know what was happening because I was too young at the time. Right, okay. I think if I'd watched it, what, if I'd what, watched it on, in the cinema in yeah. the 1960s, I would have been blown away because the the, the display of, of kind of... It's an art film that that displays a potential future for cinema that we didn't know about. This technology on the screen. is quite extraordinary but we've seen that since so it doesn't have that impact anymore we've seen it in alien <coughs> and silent running and star wars we've seen that technology now but alien silent running alien and star wars have more conventional plots they aren't art films and they're more conventionally and I, filmed yeah and i feel but i feel the same as i do about 2001 as i do about solaris which is i appreciate it i think it's a fantastic film and it's you know it's it's deservedly in the top whatever fifty films of all time. But I just don't enjoy, enjoy it. it. I'd rather you, much you, rather watch you, Alien or Star Wars or Silent I think
2: Solaris is is only on about two levels. Solaris? Um You know, you you watch it as no, you, you can incredible. watch it as a film from Star and go, Oh, that was a film with a story. Yeah. And there's another couple of levels and obviously level. it's I Russian, so they're gonna be throwing some other stuff in there. Yeah. But with this it's 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 the same, but more. There just seems to be so much you can pick from it. And you can discuss it forever. Yeah. Depending on whether Kubrick means yeah, but or that does means.
1: But that doesn't mean that... I'm much the same as Matt, though. It's entertaining. In, as as it doesn't mean it's entertaining. I find it interesting. I find it impressive. Uh, you know, it does spark up information. I think there's so much. There's so much gap in there. There's so much space <laughs> in there that people are able to fill that space with their own ideas. I think because when I, when I first watched it, when he gets to that bedroom at the end, I just assumed, oh, he's broken the barrier to heaven. He's in heaven.
2: Well, do you know what? This is what I I was thinking about this. Stop me if you all know this already. I'm just being an idiot. But this is all about God. This film isn't it? All different types of God, God-like things. So everything from the uh, you know the the ape man at the beginning throwing the bone into the sky if he was to ever meet his future uh, evolutionary version of himself he'd think he is a god you know we create AI we become the god to AI AI wants to be the god of the the people in that ship it's his own little world he can control them and then we uh, ascend to you know via the help of these super beings who we consider gods to because we don't understand them because they're so far in advance that we just don't understand it and then there we are, we're created by these wonderful beings and sent back down to Earth like a little Jesus Christ, you know, uh, thing, to try and influence the world. To me, it just feels like but it's, it's taken all, everything we know about religion and God and just going, right, we can do it like a scientific... But I don't think that makes it an so unusual that. film, because there's so many... I mean, that's one, yeah, but one, that's one layer of all yeah. the yeah. other yeah, stuff yeah, that's yeah, going yeah, on. That's what I mean. There's so much
3: to I think because to think it's, about. I think it's because it's sci-fi, because it's science fiction, and because there's so much detail detail in there and there's so much focus on the detail I think I'd rather watch a film like The Shining which I think has multiple layers but actually it has more human drama in this as well and there is drama in this but it's kind of so so underplayed that he he just switches hell off
2: So, I know, I know, it's it's, it's, it's great. It's It's great. Uh, He has to switch him off anyway, doesn't he? Because he's going to kill him. Yes. So he's got, you know, the creator destroys him. I think the moment moment is great,
3: but but there needed to be, for me, there needed to be some more, some degree of sort of tension.
0: What works for me, and where I think the tension is, is in the is in the dichotomy between the photography and the editing. Mm -hmm. Because Kubrick, as going back to where I said before, when Kubrick doesn't use the grammar, he will hold shots for up to a minute, sometimes Mm -hmm. two minutes at a time, that no other director would be brave enough to hold without any kind of movement, completely still just
3: yeah so actors the, or, so the shot the shot inside the the circling spaceship it goes on for run.
0: like a minute and a half
3: or something and, that, and my point is that's a spectacular shot because for, for multiple reasons. but i'm reasons. not talking about the shot
0: right i'm talking about the tension between the shot and the edit yeah so if, where kubrick a lot of the time works for me and the reason why i can go back to his films and watch them over And over and over again. There's this shot at the start of A Clockwork Orange where they're in a car driving down a road. And after 10 seconds, you think you're expecting it to go to something else. And after 20 seconds, you're thinking, this is going on so long, this is getting stupid. And after 30 seconds, you're pissing yourself laughing because you can't believe it's still on that shot. And 30 seconds after that, when it's still on that shot, you're thinking, what the hell's going on? But the tension is in, so when does the cut come? Yeah. And that, for me, is Kubrick's film because the shot itself is so beautiful. I could look at it for minutes on and end.
1: Is there an element of that though? That it's down to your conditioning though. That it's only down to the fact that you've watched other films which behave in a different way that creates that tension. Yes, yeah. But that's so, still a part of that I mean, it, film. See, so it, that's interesting. That in it exists alongside. He's always reacting films. to the way that other films are made. So, yeah, I don't think
0: he's. But I don't think he's proactively reacting to them. I think he's just doing what so he wants a, to do, regardless of what they do.
3: So I, I, I agree, and I like those. So the the idea of the unbroken shots, that's something that Tarkovsky does throughout. I and mean, he's Tarkovsky's almost more famous than Kubrick for unbroken shots, and you might be influenced by Kubrick. But it's not the fact that but, they're unbroken, yeah. but it's where the break is yeah, going to come. Yeah, so that, it's that kind of... So there's a shot in Tarkovsky's second-to-last film called Nostalgia, which is a guy carrying a lit candle across a drained Roman bath, a drained Roman swimming pool. And back to it. Spartacus. He walks it across and he gets halfway and the candle goes out, so he walks back to get the candle lit. And the idea is he has to carry the lit candle all the way across to put it, to put it into the holder at the other end. And for 20 minutes, this unbroken shot follows him back and forth, carrying this candle. Mm. And you're watching it, and the tension of him carrying this candle... Becomes so so unbearable that that's the that's the drama
2: of the it's scene. It's like a really version of it. So that's, that's kind of I know,
0: spoiled that. when you know that the shot's twenty minutes, yeah. isn't that, there's it? There's that well, brilliant
1: shot, isn't there, in Arthur? That, which I don't know why it reminds me of that. With the, the old lady, yeah, the old well. lady, or one with the Zimmer frame that walks across the oh, screen okay. takes ages, yeah. then breaks wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The tension that so, makes it funny. So there are, long, there
3: are long shots, but in two thousand one, I didn't get that. I didn't get that same feeling. I got the sense that because. I got the sense that we were being shown something rather than we were being shown something happening. So oh, you yeah, we oh, yeah. Showing yeah. the details of what was happening rather than. Well, no, but that's how Kubrick works. That shot in A *Clockwork Orange*
0: that, where you see them driving down the road—that I was talking about—yeah, ten seconds would have showed you what that shot was. The fact that he leaves it there for, I think it's like a minute and a half.
3: Yeah.
0: That's something else. He's no longer showing you. Tarkovsky There is that shot is about the guy carrying the candle, right? Yes, yeah. Stanley Kubrick's shot of the spaceship. Yes. Where he'll stay on the spaceship for 45 seconds. Yes, as it's just moving across towards where it's going to dock. It's not about whether it's going to dock, because it cuts way before it docks.
3: No. So it's not about the spaceship. It's yeah. just about the beauty of the shot. Yes, and I, but the beauty and also the details of the shot. And it's a demonstration well, of, of the technical and the, the revolving spaceship of the guy running.
0: But I think with Kubrick, the thing about the details is he wants to get the details right mm. so you can forget the details yeah. So I don't think it is about the details. But I think
3: it's about
0: being able
3: to not notice the details. Yeah, but I don't think in this one film... I think in other films, I think it works, but in this one film... Oh, and, maybe, I said, and again, I think it's, you know, one of the top 50 greatest films ever made, and it's full of layers, and... Bit, well, this is... It's Mark, Mark <clears throat> Mode always says that when he watches a Transformers movie that goes on for three hours, he says, in three hours within 3 hours 2001 took you from the the dawn of man to the the next generation of man and then transformers just shows you like a sequence of some mechanized battles and th- I agree with him but but I think I think if I was watching it in the 1960s my mind would have been blown away mm, I'm this watching is... it now and I'm just thinking I'm appreciating, I'm thinking, well, in the 1960s, I would have been blown when away. When was the last time so, you like, watched in the like, cinema,
1: though? Like JR, though, I think I saw it in the 70s, but that might be my memory tricking me. Mm. I swear
0: it was shown like a matinee or an afternoon in the 70s before Star Wars came out.
1: Well, I would have had to have I seen could it be in wrong. Se- in, on television.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on television, Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. On, like, BBC One on a Saturday morning mm. or a Sunday afternoon mm. or something. I swear it I could but, be completely but, wrong. If, maybe somebody if, will... If somebody knows, maybe they can... Email in or get in touch on Facebook and let us know. Mm. I will say about 2001, I think it stands totally apart from the rest of Kubrick's films. Because the rest of Kubrick's films are all about individuals and the things that individuals do. This is, and this is why it behaves differently. It's not about individuals, it's about what happens to the species. Mm. And although it happens to an individual, that individual himself is not an important is not important in no, the way but that.
2: But he's representative of that species at that time.
0: But, but, Dr. Strangelove is a story about Jack D. Ripper. And Barry Lyndon is a story about Redmond Barry. And The Shining is a story about Jack Torrance. And Passive Glory is a story about um, Kirk Douglas's character. All the other films are stories about characters, about people, about individuals. This film isn't, and it behaves... He uses all the same mm. techniques he uses in all those other films, mm. but his subject is a different subject, and so they work in a completely different way. So it's entirely possible to enjoy the entire rest of Kubrick's oeuvre and not like 2001,
3: because it is entirely yeah. different from the rest of all I those mean, films. 2001 is an art house film, but made with a lot of money. I mean, that's what it's... it's that's it was supposed to be... But yeah, maybe. Well, I think I think possibly from the way the way it was the way it was conceived and written, I think that's what made it an art house film potentially. Because, yeah, but... because he took away a lot of the dialogue and he stripped it down and he reorganized it as well. So it wasn't. So the dawn of man scene was going to be a flashback later on. So it was going to open with. I remember, I think it was going to open with the moon sequence and then it was going to flash back halfway through the house sequence to the dawn of man and then it was going to have the end of it Mm. so it was sort of pieced together in a really strange
2: way it's pretty linear isn't it
3: and kind of joined with this glue of sort of these kind of long
2: effects shots and uh, the star gate sequence as well but I, I, you know the the sequence where he's running around uh, that Mm. circular yeah. Um, centrifuge or what you call it. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a hamster wheel, isn't it? I mean, that's probably yeah. mentioned before. But you know, but it's more than that. It's the fact that man is or that man is actually caught within this world. And it's very like you say, banal. It's like, mm-hmm. what do you do on a trip that lasts two years on a spaceship? You, you,
3: you like Simon said, you eat food. You eat food <laughs> and, and you eat food There's and keep fit. Things
2: that's things. all you do. And yeah. that's what they're showing. What they you know, and that's yeah. that's what yeah. you get. And if you don't if you were to cut it, and give it quicker cuts, and we did make it a bit faster for, for the for us people who were sitting again. Maybe oh, it's a bit boring, isn't it? A bit too slow. Then you you you'd, you'd kind transfixed of you'd get, Yes, exactly. <laughs> you you wouldn't get that feeling. You have to have that um, long um, meditative, ambient kind of state of mind in order to appreciate the end part more I've, than I'm anything a, else. And also, the tension and how comes in. I'm always happy.
3: i I've never had a problem with banality. Banality in the cinema. I know so, on I was, this podcast. so I've seen, I've seen films oh, no, that go, on, go on for eternity that doesn't, that don't do anything in scenes mm. of like women making meatloaf in a flat for twenty minutes. Robert yeah, but that's, Holtman, just, that's just you looking through someone's films. window. Isn't well, it? yeah, but I think, but I think on this occasion it just didn't work for me. And I think it was the science fit. I think it was the fact that, the fact that the banality was also, you were supposed to be looking at the details of the set and. And you're thinking, wow, this looks like the future. And for me, it still looked a bit like Reggie Perrin. And that doesn't just mean because (laughs) Leonard Rossiter was in it. But there was a lot of sort of, you know, it would have looked... I don't think it survived the test of time. I don't think think it's timeless, like... Other Kubrick films. I
2: don't know. Oh. I don't know. I think parts of it are parts of it. Yeah, yeah, not all of it. I mean, the hope. I because I don't the mean, say, I it, don't mean if the If you watch that, and then you watch the one. One. Yeah. if you
1: watch that, and then you watch THX, there's not a lot technologically. There's been uh, there's not much advance mm. between the two, is there? No, no. Mm. as far as the the, the the technology used in as far as the filmmaking is concerned, as far as doing that science fiction. THX eleven thirty eight. Yeah, mm. Mm. they're only three years apart. I suppose. Yeah, but they're still not. Yeah.
0: Okay. I think THX is like 2001, very like
2: 2001. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: two, two versions of that as well. Um, <clears throat> should we give it a score? Are we going to do that with this? I don't know. <laughs> there's there there one thing that I've read. I didn't know whether we were. I mean, there's one thing that was quite how
2: interesting. How do you score to 2001 a t- 10 out of 10. I mean, <laughs> there's one thing that was quite interesting to me that I thought I read about, but I don't know whether it's true, so maybe you can clear it up. That, and actually when you mentioned documentary maker, it might be might be more true than I think. It's the fact that all this technology that's not explained to us, that's just sitting in front of us, and it hangs on things like the cryogenic kind of chambers and all that sort of stuff. Apparently there was supposed to be some narration over the top of that, like a documentary saying and this there, there will a, be the cryonic tube This is what we'll have in the future. Was, and right at the last minute he decided to get rid of all of that no, and there was, a documentary, the
3: there was a documentary opening. There was like a voiceover documentary opening of the film.
2: To explain the tech?
3: Uh, to uh, to introduce the film initially. But that was okay. one of the things that he
2: cut, cut out for before, oh, right, okay. before starting. Because that would make sense when there was so much yeah. uh, I don't think you need dialogue to gapage. It's like Blade Runner. It could play no, out just like just a
1: Darling Kindersley it's,
3: type. It's like, <laughs> it's like the director's thing, cut of Blade Runner. No, so, with,
0: the, I think it's like the... Kind of Blade Runner with the voiceover. Because oh, right. The voiceover doesn't really explain what's going on. The voiceovers, yeah. the voiceover in Blade Runner is more about. Well, no, it kind of explains certain things that are going mm. on. But what I mean is, the voiceover in Blade Runner explains what's going on in his story. Right. But it doesn't explain all the background details, mm. like what the technology is. No. Mm. So that's yeah. what the um, solution I love making. that voiceover in Blade Runner. Yeah. I do, I much prefer it to the director's. Is The way It plays out like a. I'm geez, a off of a, the Blu ray. Yeah. The Blu ray, which I still haven't got, because mm. I'm assuming it's one without the voiceover on. I'm I'd assuming, rather...
1: yeah, I'll buy it at the moment. They say it's. there's a the five... voiceover, yeah. It's yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. a 5 Disc Special.
0: And, uh... Yeah, but I bought that on DVD. I'm not forking out for it again on Blu ray. The final cut
2: was quite <laughs> good, I quite like that.
0: But the final cut doesn't have the voiceover, right? Yeah, that's true. It doesn't. And I'd rather have the voiceover. Mm-hmm to be frank. It feels
3: proper gumshooter. I I grew up with the non-voiceover version. Mm. So.
1: you got some of the voiceovers in the Zig, not, Zig Zig Sputniks along <laughs> <runner. laughs>
2: I don't like Blade Runner very much. Yeah. Oh, who
3: invited Matt <laughs> on
0: <No.
2: laughs> Well, it's because we're using his house. It's yeah. like having the drummer for the carriage, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. Um,
0: <laughs> <clears throat> OK, we're not going to score it. I will
2: say oh, that will, I'll happily
1: score it. OK. No, six out of ten. Ooh. Because if you're asking <laughs> me to, for Be to, to, yeah, subjective, yeah, no, man. Give me yeah, a subjective a, As a film, I'd give it a 6 out of 10 because it just... Mm. doesn't uh, entertain you. It, no. It, I feel like in order to get the best out of it, you need to know the backstory of it, of what, mm. what it is and what it's trying to do, as opposed to what is there on the screen. Mm. But at the same time, you know, Donnie Darko, one of my favourite films, what I love about that is what isn't explained, so you make up your own mind. So you know, maybe I'm being hung by my own batard, but
2: or leotard even leotard, yeah. yeah if we're out in space, I don't know. Go on then, Lee. Do so if, I had, if it had a New Order soundtrack, would it have an extra point? <sighs> <laughs> 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 if I had a Pet Shop Boys <laughs> one, I would. No, it would. It, it's no. not. I I don't think it's the perfect film to watch on a Saturday have have... evening. It's just it's quite a slow burn, and you've got to be w- well in the mood for it. Last time I watched it was about seven or eight years ago and that's the, that's the time period it takes. Eight years, every eight years I'm due for another watch. But um, every time I watch it... I, I used find, to watch
0: it once a year.
2: I, I find something new <coughs> in it every time I watch it and I... I probably add too much to it, but I don't mind. Yeah. I like doing that. It's fun. Watching
0: it this time on Blu-ray for the first time, there was one shot where I thought, oh, wow, I didn't realise it did that as well.
2: <laughs> and I must have seen that 20 times. Exactly. And you can just read whatever you wanted to. I think it's a, a ball of fun on a very slow... level ball of fun? <laughs> I've never fun. quite heard it described that A ball way of before. fun on a kind of slow level. Um I don't know. Let's give it a nice 8 out of 10, because it's not the most perfect movie in the world, but... It's pretty good,
3: Go on then, Matt, subjectively, I think as a film, it's probably a nine or ten out of ten. But as a work of entertainment, I think maybe a seven out of ten. Mm. I mean, it's also
2: making like an eight. <laughs> no, eight. Yeah, eight, eight and a quarter. quarter. Yeah. Okay.
1: I will say it's quite unnerving. There's that really odd edit when Frank gets sent spinning off into space. Oh, there's long, that, that uh, cut is just the, quite jarring, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: but Kubrick's got a great sense of humor about stuff like that. Yeah, and there's the, in fact, in the he's slightly
1: sped up as well, isn't he? As he's struggling mm-hmm. in space, and, and then
0: mm-hmm. in Star in the Stargate sequence, you suddenly get a half a second of. Um, Keir DeLayer with uh, ridiculous expressions on his face. Yeah. Same as he does in things like The Shining. Mm. <laughs> and same as he does in lots, lots, and lots of his films, you'll suddenly get cutaways. In fact, at the start of Barry Lyndon, where um, he does the duel with um, Leonard Rossiter. Mm. And um, I know. Lee, have you just killed that? Shellcroak, okay. don't <laughs> the, There's the well, duel with. There's a duel with Leonard Roster and you've got a bit where you're looking at Leonard Roster and he's got a perfectly normal expression on his face. Then it cuts to um, Ryan O'Neill and then it cuts back to Leonard Roster and he's got an expression on his face that looks like somebody's just farted.
2: And it's like, what? we you he's there in a brain Mac in a plastic bag.
0: <laughs> but Kubrick knows. Or maybe Kubrick doesn't know that if an expression changes, you're supposed to show the expression changing. Otherwise, the audience is thinking, well, why happened there? But either he knows and doesn't care or else he doesn't know and doesn't think it's important or as important as convention would have
2: it. But he does that all the time. I'm surprised you don't know. You're an expert. Do you know whether he means to do these things? well how can you know whether he means to
0: do these things because he didn't write well, in his diary I meant to do
3: that for such and he, such a reason he, okay. means, he means to do it whether he yes for, for what reason he successful. means to do it Yeah, and the fact that we're talking about it and they're memorable yeah I suspect that's probably the, the biggest point yeah and certainly certainly I can remember bits of A Clockwork Orange where that happens and I've only seen it once yeah speaking of which mm. yeah yeah
1: speaking of which Clockwork Orange was next so we've all seen that mm. I've never seen it have really no. It's one of those things yeah. where I, I'm aware of its influence on everything. So, Matt, you've only seen I it once. I really disliked it. it. I have to. I
3: might. I might need to watch it again. The but film really or the talk... content? Both.
2: I think. Sorry, say again. Film or the content? As it in, maybe. as in, because it was a book, obviously.
3: It was mainly the, the content, but I think for me it had built up because it was one of these banned films, banned for a different reason, but like The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh ah, yes. And and there was only one film that had been banned that actually lived up to, to its hype for me, and that was The Exorcist. Not Straw and Dogs? No, not even Straw Dogs. Mm. I didn't feel like I'd missed out on Straw Dogs. And watching A Clockwork <laughs> Orange, I just thought, I know I quite a few is, people who no. came
0: to Clockwork Orange after Kubrick died and Warners finally released it and said, what was all the fuss about? Or, mm. well, that was rubbish. Perhaps we live because, in a different age. Well, no, I think perhaps because it's so stylized, they were expecting something with less stylized violence. But because it's mm. so stylized, the violence is like something out of Tom and Jerry.
3: Mm. I didn't think it was... Yeah, I didn't think... I wasn't shocked by it. No. But I was shocked by... I thought it was... I thought it was quite, a, I felt unclean watching it. I thought it was quite... That's a why it was banned. Yeah. But yeah, it just felt like an unpleasant film. But that was deliberate. Like though. he was off, off the leash, yeah. But that doesn't mean that... So um, 2001, I felt very sort of flat watching it, but I appreciated it. It's very clinical. At Clockwork Orange, I felt really grimy and slightly soiled watching it. And I didn't really think, I didn't really appreciate it either. And I think there's, I think there's a balance. And I think for me, the balance is was, was The Shining, where I can see how it's, it's been filmed and it's really, yeah. Shining is one of my less favourite Kubrick films, really. Hmm. Uh, Kubrick's
0: one of, uh, Club of Orange is one of my favourites. Right. 2001 is not one of my particular favourites. Hmm. If I was to do a top three, it would be Passive Glory, Barry Lyndon, and I don't know. Probably "Strange Love" or Lolita. I don't
3: like "Strange Love"
0: either. <laughs> I love "Strange Love," but anyway, Clark Orange." Then, following that, he was going to do "Napoleon." Well, actually, he was going to do "Napoleon" before, yeah. but "Napoleon" he got um, preempted when somebody else made a film of it that failed at the box office. So you've missed out the moon landings. What yeah, moon, landings. He did moon oh, landings. yeah, he did the moon <laughs> landings. No, no, that was Peter Hyams. Was it? <laughs> yeah, Have you never seen Capricorn 1? Yes.
1: Yeah, I have uh, actually, yeah.
0: That well, was Peter Hyams. Uh, who did 2010, the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey? There
1: you go, all yeah.
0: Those
2: moon landings, the plot's a bit thin. Not much goes on. Land on the moon, go home. Anyway,
0: yeah, Napoleon no, was taken of off the table, so he did Clockwork Orange, and then he did Barry Lyndon, to make up for the fact that he didn't do Napoleon. Barry Lyndon's just a wonderful piece of work. Has anybody else here seen you see it? Barry Lyndon?
2: Yeah. <laughs> that was... Have you not seen Barry Lyndon? No! I'm surprised out. you've got away with it. Cause, I've got um, a
1: pile of DVDs that uh, JR gave me. I was going to say, it that. I, a... <laughs> I went to watch 2001 and realised it was Region 1, so I spent the weekend trying to work out how I could watch a Region 1, which I sorted out in the end, but... yeah. I've, sacri- yeah, well, I have. I've sacrificed one of my daughter's um, region code changes on her DVD drive. Ah. You got a Panasonic
3: DVD player?
1: No. Okay.
0: Oh,
3: Panasonic, you actually need hardware. Oh, I've got a, a special doofer that can unlock... Well, that's what I did. I unlocked my Panasonic. Oh, did you? It's a fiber from eBay. Yes. You put an AA battery and you just press a button and the All LED right. lights up. Is it legal? And then it, yeah, I think so. Because no right you're just a minute. No, there's, there's no, people. there's no problem in doing it. You're just hacking <laughs> your own, you're hacking your own DVD player. So there's nothing illegal about that. But you're getting someone's help to hack it. I
2: see. Mm-hmm. that's Matt Barber speaking. There, everybody. Yep. <laughs> Actually, when it comes
0: down to the technicalities of it, it's not illegal to own a multi-region player. In the same way as it's illegal to import and play multi-region discs.
2: Oh.
0: It's the playing of the discs. If, if there was a, an issue, it
1: would be in the playing of the discs, mm. wherein the issue would be rather than the hacking of the machine. The issue is that the, in the different countries, they put different features on the discs, so you end up buying the import because it's got better features <coughs> than American discs. So,
2: Like the key to time. Actually, it's the key to time. but uh, the key to time? What? There was an American release with loads and loads of extras. Tom Baker in the rating, or something. No, have I got that one? Got that one.
0: Well, you sort of hey, well, misremembering it. To it. To... <laughs> Am I
2: misremembering? Misrem- um, Explain.
0: Well, in America, when DVD came out, and America was ahead of Britain in DVD, so in Britain they released the Five Doctors, which because it's a British TV series, so the Five Doctors got released in Britain. Mm. No extras to all intents and purposes. And in America, when they released The Five Doctors, they said, well, we're not putting it out with no extras on it. So they recorded a commentary for it. So the release of The Five Doctors in America was a different release to the one that was in Britain, rather than just the same release in two different countries. So then in America, they went to Doctor Who fandom and polled them and said, if you had to choose one story for us to release next here in America what would it be? An American fandom organised on the internet were intelligent enough to say, well, if I could have one story released on DVD, I'd have The Key to Time, please. (laughs) So America released The Key to Time with a commentary track on each story. But those were the extent of the extras. So Mm. when The Key to Time came out in Britain, with all sorts of documentaries and all kinds of other stuff, actually the British release had way more extras uh, okay. that American release had had but that American release was never released in Britain mm-hmm. so it wasn't that so much that the American release had extras that we hadn't but the, the key to time was released in America and we didn't have it at all if you want to take it back to mm-hmm. Doctor Who while we're still sort of on 2001 A Space Odyssey famously Stanley Kubrick watched the death of Katerina in Dalek Masterplan and um, for um, some of the effect sequences in 2001
3: and rang up the BBC and said, how did you do that? And I think that's what he got so on, well, he didn't use it, but the the bit where it comes in the airlock. comes in the airlock, but he yeah. was...
0: He used a wire in the air. From above, yeah. <sighs> Incidentally, if anybody's listening to this and then thinking, oh, I wonder if somewhere in Stanley Kubrick's house there is a copy of The Dalek Master Plan, somewhere that is recorded off the telly. No, I have spoken actually personally myself to Stanley Kubrick's brother-in-law and Stanley Kubrick's head archivist, and they actually went and looked on my behalf, and no, there is not a copy of The Dalek's Master Plan or any other Doctor Who episodes at Stanley Kubrick's house or anywhere on his estate. So please don't bother them with that question. They've already answered it.
2: Could you put that at the beginning of the podcast? <laughs> why? People will forget by the time they get to the end. <laughs> and at the end.
0: Barry Lyndon then. One of my favourites. Beautifully filmed without using uh, any extra lighting wasn't acting it? Acting in the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had to I make know, new um... he had to make new he had to have new cameras built so they could film in natural light after dark. It's just
2: astonishing to watch.
0: Um, next one after that is The Shining.
3: Matt, tell us about why you love The Shining then.
2: Oh, because it's a really
3: good horror movie. I mean, it's, and it looks really good. And I think it is a really good horror movie. I think the, <clears throat> the build-up of tension, the claustrophobia, and the use of... So, again, so there's a there's a history of Kubrick making up technology in order to be able to film his films. And so you've got, obviously, 2001 is the famous version of building this giant the revolving thing. But with The Shining, he pretty much invented... The upside the, down the the steady cam. Yeah, the steady cam. The well, the steady down cam steady. existed, but, he but they had to onto the. Yeah, yeah, recreate it so it could be low down to the ground. And in this instance, it works really well because it really adds to the film. It adds an element to the film. Mm. And there are bits in it that I think are equal to 2001, the bit in the bathroom with with Grady. There's just. Yeah, yeah. you're talking about Kubrick not following the logic of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah when he's filming ghosts, when he's creating an atmosphere involving ghosts, that works so well because you don't see Grady's face for a good... like Seven minutes, good. I mean, yeah. this guy is being invented. You're, you're thinking he's, he may or may not be being invented by Torrance. You can't see his face. And so Kubrick's really weird way of filmmaking and the really weird thing he's, he's filming and the fact that you don't know whether it's in Torrance's head or not, come together all in one nice package. Mm.
0: That whole sequence where he goes into the uh, restaurant and suddenly there's music and there's yeah. people and you get... Um, I can't remember the actor's name. He's from... Philip Stone. No, 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 not Philip Stone, the one behind the bar. Oh, OK. Um, he's from Passive Glory. He's Is one of he? the three prisoners okay. in the Passive Glory. Oh, right. <laughs> in fact, there was urban myth busting. It was said at one point, nobody ever worked with Stanley Kubrick twice, because he was such a horrible guy to work for, you'd never go back and work for him again. But actually, there isn't a single film, including the two amateur ones, in Stanley Kubrick's career, where there haven't been actors that he's also used at other times in other films. Mm. Not a single film in his career, as a cast that doesn't have somebody from somewhere else. (laughs) Apart from, um, well, no, even this isn't quite true. I was going to say, apart from Full Metal Jacket, because, obviously, of the subject matter, you wouldn't stop Full Metal Jacket with lots of English actors. Mm. Actually, Stanley Kubrick himself is in Full Metal Jacket.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And Lolita and Eyes Wide
2: Shut. Mm-hmm. So, would he work with himself again? <laughs> well, he did, because, as I've
0: just said, he's in three of his own films. There you are, then. Um, Myth busted. After The Shining, then, is Full Metal Jacket. Is it the greatest war film of all time? No. well here's the thing I'm not sure that it isn't the greatest Vietnam war film of all time because even though it came at the end of the cycle of Vietnam war films and even though it's filmed in London so it's got this odd quality that all of Kubrick's films pretty much have where there's a sort of dislocation between the location and the location if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. but there's something about it again that all the other War films, all the other Vietnam films, there are parallels between them all, whereas Full Metal Jacket just stands apart. And in that respect, I don't know whether that makes it... Well, no, that in itself doesn't make it the best. But if it's among the best and it stands apart,
4: Mm.
0: that kind of elevates it, in a way. So I don't know. I think maybe it is the best Vietnam War film, even though, you know, all these other films... Came before and would have mm. seemed to have preempted it. Simon
1: Fullmetal Jacket. Never seen it. Right, the <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> right, wasn't he? Yeah. You're like Andy talking about classic Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have literally got your pile of Stanley Kubrick DVDs and worked my, worked my way through them. So you've yeah. seen The Shining, though, haven't you? Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, but but much like The Exorcist, first time I watched that, I was kind of like, right, what is all the fuss about? Mm. So I do need to watch it again because mm. The Exorcist second time I thought it was brilliant, completely different experience. Also first he filmed,
2: I think that he does a lot of centralized shoots. That what's the word I am looking for? You know where he puts everything in the middle of the screen. Oh yeah, cool It's yeah. all Cooper. about perspective, and he shows ceilings a lot. Yeah, this what, is the thing. Why? Why does he do that? Just because he was a photographer and he just he's bending the rules of the rule of thirds? But he's not bending
3: like the rules in order to
0: bend the rules. He's bending the rules because he thinks that's. The most effective way of sharing it, partly because, because when you're a photographer, you look to show people as an artist, you look to show people things in a way that they've not seen it before, so they'll reconsider the thing that you're showing them. And Kubrick's doing the same with films. If he's showing two people talking to each other, he wants you to reconsider the idea of two people talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So he's not doing it because it's different but he's doing it because that's how he sees it, if you know what I mean. Like Van Gogh. You look at Van Gogh's paintings and they're hardly naturalistic, Mm. but people will always say, oh, that's how Van Gogh sees the world. Mm. Same with Kubrick, with his films, I guess. Should we bust some other myths then while we're... Like the Mm. number of takes he does. And people would always go on... uh, Malcolm McDowell on some Channel 4 documentary famously way back when was banging on, I don't, he'd say, you'd get to take 20 and you'd think, there it is, Stanley, you've got it, it's in the can and then when you're another 50 takes down the line you're thinking, what the hell are you just doing this for? But Kubrick's, <laughs> Kubrick's sort of philosophy was if you've got film running in the can and you've got the actors there and you've got the set built, and you've got all the makeup on. You've done all the hard work in getting everybody into that room. It doesn't matter how many times you send that film through the camera, because all the hard work is in all the stuff that you've done before Mm. that involves everybody else. When it comes down to the film going through the camera, it's the two actors in front of you. But Kubrick, and this goes back again to what I was saying about this timeless thing, about this difference between Kubrick's films and other films. And he does something that the Cohen brothers do. And he does something that you usually get with say um, Andy Kaufman's pictures. Andy Kaufman? Charlie Kaufman's pictures. Andy Kaufman was in Taxi, wasn't he? (laughs) Charlie Kaufman's pictures. There's a dislocation from reality. But Kubrick's way of getting that dislocation from reality... Have you ever... The best way I can describe it is this. Have you ever woken up and you're so dog-tired but you've got to go to work and you do go to work and it's like you've sort of got an auto-function going on Mm. and you feel slightly dislocated from your body? Kubrick would run the scenes. This is my opinion. This is not something that I've read. Kubrick would run the film through the camera, run the scenes that many times... Because he wanted to get the actors to a place where they were auto-functioning. Because in auto-functioning, they're no longer concentrating on the performance. They're just being the thing.
3: So, the, um, I think that's true. But I don't think it's a Kubrick. I think Kubrick was so Robert Bresson. Yeah, okay. I'm writer. not saying Kubrick is the only person who's ever done it. But this is exactly what Robert Bresson did. He He took so many takes, so the actors stopped acting by the end of it. They were delivering lines in a really sort of bald way, a really exposed way. Yeah. So that so that he stripped the acting out of the actors, and you can see that
1: in. So what would be, be, be fair, different? George Lucas managed to have a couple of takes on the Phantom Man. <laughs> <laughs> but the the only problem with that, I think he managed it before. You did filming put the camera; it was there in the
3: script. <laughs> the, <laughs> the only problem with that technique is when you've got someone like Scatman Crothers on The Shining, doing something quite like. Physically, physically tough or emotionally tough, and you get actors basically just falling apart because they're asked to do the same thing. So, you say the hard work is in the setup, but sometimes with some scenes, the hard work is also in the performance. Well, it wouldn't, work. yeah, and of course, it's, you've got to remember, yeah. he doesn't run 70 takes of every there's scene. A, there's, um, so, um, Werner Herzog made a film called Hearts of Glass, mm. and he took this to an extreme where he hypnotized his cast so he he basically he hypnotized all the people acting to make them believe that they're actually in this in this place and his the film is full of these actors not acting but just giving these weird kind of blank performances <laughs> where they don't quite know where they're going and they're kind of stumbling around it's the strangest film and it kind of works in the in the same way that bresson and Bresson are a million miles away from the performances in Kubrick's movies. No, no, this is yeah, mm. it it works. I mean, you're not getting acting like sometimes you see an actor acting and you think they're acting really yeah. well, and there's a pleasure to that. Someone like Toby Jones or Benedict Cumberbatch, you can see them acting, you can see the mechanics of acting, and even the method actors like Hoffman yeah, 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 you can see, it you performance. Can see the act- performance. But Kubrick does manage to get actors to stop. Acting and just...
2: It apart
0: like from conditioning, one. Isn't it? Well, There's one performance in one Kubrick Jack movie. Jack Nicholson? No, 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 no. Okay. Oh, no, no, Jack Nicholson in The Shining is amazing. He's not acting. Right. He's being. Okay. No, the one performance in a Kubrick movie where you can see the performance and it sticks out a mile and doesn't ruin the movie because... She's not in it a whole lot. She's in basically a scene at the start, a scene in the middle, and a scene at the end. It's Nicole Kidman in Nice White Shirt. She kills those scenes in that movie. Cruz is amazing in that film. Kidman drags him right down in those scenes.
1: I think it's odd that Tom Cruise has never done any children's movies or family movies, apart from Legend. Can you think of any?
2: No. Maybe because maybe because he doesn't want to be considered a kid because he's quite small, isn't he? Anyway, <laughs> B. Uh, but also, but the just a very quickly on yeah. the auto. What did you call it? The auto. Um, oh, I don't know what I
0: called it. What did I call it?
2: The, the, over over exposing the actors to scenes until they oh, do so it you're automatically. On autopilot. Yeah, auto-pilot. Yeah. autopilot. So you know what is the difference between say rehearsing a million times, so like with Nail and I, where they had to rehearse, 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 and when they got on set, they were literally the characters. That's why it comes across so well in the film. That they, they, they are literally those characters when, they're, when, they're, when he says, right, it right. right.
0: Not, like, you can still see
2: the performance. Mm.
0: It,
1: well, I mean, yeah, they're really it very natural, fun, but fun. Fun. you can still see yeah. it's an actual I mean, it, performance.
2: There's quite a heightened performance from Richard E. Grant, uh, but in a, somehow he, I, he I, manages I, to nail it... To I think Even it's, with heightened, hammed-up performers, it I seems
3: real. There's a difference between rehearsing and being filmed, and I think with with these, they think, never the know difference? which is the last take. Right, so is that so the difference const- you're doing they're it? They're constantly trying to please Kubrick, or trying to please yeah. the director, and presumably after each take, they're asked to sort of strip down something, strip down something, or change something, and then eventually there's nothing left to change. So they're kind of stripped down. They're not... With rehearsing, they're refining a performance and then they're delivering it. With being filmed on multiple takes, they're basically stripping the performance away. I
2: think yeah. that's the difference. You're literally knackering the knackering the, the death, basically the actors as well. Because amount of emotional energy mm. needed for every scene. Yeah that would that would take all of that. That would suck the energy out. So how does Kubrick get yeah, but such good performances even at the end of those? But he doesn't. Or maybe he doesn't. Is know, this the myth we're busting? Yeah, I because I think he has. I think part of what Kubrick does is he
0: strips the emotion out. Mm. So that when you get... Because a lot of people look at... And this is one of the things that critics have a problem with him for. They say his films are emotionless. And I think... But I think in stripping the emotion out... What he does is, because the emotion is the one thing that an actor can never give you the genuine version of. Mm. And so emotion in a film, no matter how good and how method an actor is, he has to perform the emotion rather than actually having the emotion because, I don't know, his wife hasn't actually died in the scene where he's emoting about his wife having died, or whatever, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, but you'd have to bring up something inside you in order to perform that really well in the first place. So, in other words, somebody may, yeah, have, it's done, it's may have died Kubrick in his life. But yeah. a, it's an Kubrick
0: an, brings that up and then
3: waits until it's gone so that he can get oh, a performance there's where a, there's
0: no artifice. There's wow. an
3: analogy here with 2001 because Kubrick strips out the dialogue, and so what you get with 2001 is the most pared-back film in terms of explanation and in terms of dialogue that you can get whilst it still hangs together. Mm. And he does the same thing with performances. He pairs it back until you get the absolute minimum required to get across an emotion or an idea Mm. or the dialogue. And And I think that's the... And Because you've got the minimum, it's actually the transition of the emotion from them to you as a viewer becomes that much easier. Because you, you lot... as a viewer,
0: right. are providing the emotion. So mm. the film is coming from inside you instead of from on the screen. Mm. It's like, it's. it looks, unless you... If you don't go with it, it looks really artificial or it looks like there's a lot of artifice, but actually it's the least artificial way of doing it because it's projecting mm. all the things that you need to bring... To the picture on the screen, from the audience instead of from the
2: actors. Then that's what they did with Tom Hanks in that Polar Express film.
0: <clears throat> <clears throat> and so we get to Eyes uh, Wide Shut. Did has anybody seen Eyes Wide Shut? I got
2: about three quarters of the way through and turned off. I really, yeah. I just, it just didn't, you know, a tale of sexual deviance didn't. bother. I couldn't be bothered. It wasn't about. No, I know. Yeah. I, watched, I watched it when I was young. Oh, maybe I need to watch it. And fast
3: forwarded it for the sexual deviance, but couldn't find <laughs> it. And then I have watched it all the way through once. Is that, as is that a
1: film, voyeuristic aspect to it has made me kind of uncomfortable about watching it. It's
0: about. It's about the reaffirmation of your faith in your relationship. By having... The book it's based on is like a really short book. It's like a 90-page novel or something like that. It's like really fast. And it's the story's exactly the same. Two consecutive nights. On one night, he has a crisis of faith in his relationship. Goes out. Lots of temptation comes his way. But he's not tempted because he's so clean from this crisis in his relationship that he can't be tempted into... Then the following night... That crisis gets exacerbated. So he goes out again and says, Right, I'll do all the things that I get tempted into doing. Meets all the same people and realizes, No, now, if I'd have done this last night, I would have done it because I'm raw. If I do it tonight, I'm doing it because I have um, preconceived, uh, hmm. what's it called? Not preconceived, where you.
2: That uh, is what you mean, isn't it?
0: Uh, no, when you do, it's not called preconce. Say with his murder, pre something <coughs> meditated, premeditated. So on the second night, because it's premeditated, he can't go through with it either, because it's not natural anymore. It's mm. not. Uh, We've all had nights like that.
2: It's not off the cuff. Don't look at me. Matt. Off the cuff. <laughs> but then, at the
0: end of the story, he goes back to his wife, and they make up. Mm. So I mean, it's a classic story of but you're temptation. whole right,
2: kid is awful, isn't it? <laughs>
0: But I think Cruise is great, but I think the one big, big, big problem with Eyes Wide Shut is it's half an hour too long. Every other film he's made since about Doctor Strangelove almost every, almost every yeah, single yeah. one, apart from maybe Barry Linden and The Clockwork Orange, he's cut tons out before it's gone on general release. And Eyes Wide Shut he died before he got to cut anything, so it's two hours we, and three quarters. That uh, may be right didn't for like a romantic it. But wait,
3: but AI had the same problem of being too long. Probably, yeah. and that wasn't apparently that wasn't Spielberg's fault. It was Kubrick. He worked that the extra bit to AI was worked to Kubrick's specifications. But maybe you're right that Kubrick actually carried on cutting his films down. Oh yeah, even yeah. after they'd started in the, <laughs> being released yeah, to the yeah. cinema, he'd then like King, keep King on King chopping away yeah.
0: until it got. And so the version of 2001 we've got now on, like, Blu-ray and that is not the version that was in the pictures. Mm. It's had even that, without having the footage that they found 15 years ago, whatever it was, even even the version on the DVD and the Blu-ray now has still had stuff put back in. The overture at the start is... 2001's got a five-minute overture against a blank screen at the start, hasn't it? Yeah.
3: I fast-forwarded that bit. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> so does Spartacus. Yeah. Actually, I know. I watched the Spartacus one for the experience. That's about six minutes, but... isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think the, the 2001 one's about four and a half. But that's almost
3: me. Kubrick controlling the atmosphere of the cinema, even before the film starts. So, Ooh. presumably, he must have hated the adverts. Well, the train, I mean, he must have wanted people to start experiencing the film way before. Yeah. What I want
1: to know is, you know the interval in 2001? Did people literally get up and go and get an ice cream? Yeah, it's weird. It's weird, isn't it? Because, because that was not, quite because... common back in the 60s, though. But it's, there's on the DVD, obviously, they're playing the soundtrack there. So is that the idea that it kind of just bring, creates this lull before it kicks back in? Or is it literally for people to...
3: Well, we were talking about this before we started. We've both mm. seen the Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, which is about the same length as 2001. You don't get intervals no. now. No. It was quite in the 60s common back then. It, it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, remember <laughs> the inter- I remember the interval in The Empire Strikes Back. First time I saw it, oh yeah, and I yeah remember I'm exactly sure when it was. Dagobah. Because it came back in, yeah, Dagobah, and it came back in with Luke climbing into the tree mm. before he sees the vision. Yeah, there I was an interval it. for. I remember oh, really? that.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe it was for the projectionist as well to have a pee break. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah,
2: because he was cranking it by hand then, man, oh, wasn't he, in the eighties? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was there an interval in Lord of the Rings? There was. Uh, in Return the... of the King. Right. That's four hours. You long, didn't need it? intervals in Lord of the Rings because you had the elf
3: bits. And they were just as good if you wanted to go to the loo, you just went to the loo during the elf bits. Yeah. Yeah, you, you just go to, to the toilet anything. on the seat. Yeah.
2: <clears throat> like some of the seat. So are we not talking about AI, does that not count? Well, I mean, he died, and it wasn't the film he would have
0: made of him. And I think the thing that makes Kubrick's films interesting are the changes he makes when he actually gets his head behind a camera. Mm-hmm. So I think, although AI is an interesting film, it doesn't have anything of Kubrick in it for
2: me. So did he, what did he write in that film? All of it, or just parts of it? Did Spurberg AI. Flesh out I don't certain... think...
3: No, I think... I it think, does feel like... I think he did more than people think. Because, because there's lots in the AI that looks. <coughs> Spielberg-y. Yeah. That I mean, Spielberg three, since, three, since three, said three no, that's what Kubrick specified. Was, oh, so I okay. think it was sort of, I think it was very, very clearly plotted and blocked by Kubrick.
2: Right. And then okay. Spielberg
3: sort of just took that up.
2: I'm just wondering about that middle section. That middle section feels really Spielbergy, the Pinocchio bit. Mm. Whereas the, the first part, I can imagine Kubrick having fun with
0: But Kubrick had said he wanted to make a Spielberg movie. Oh. Okay. So, AI would have been his Spielberg movie. So, three, maybe that's deliberate. There's anyway. three
2: very uh, obvious tones in the movements in the three, in the three or four possible. Like
3: 2001.
0: Yeah.
2: In fact, like a lot of Stanley Kubrick's films. Mm.
0: So, shall we actually move on and talk about Infinity War then? Okay. How many yeah, people
2: I, in this room have seen it? I've seen it. I've seen yeah, it.
1: I finally saw it. Okay. Yesterday.
0: Talk among yourselves because <laughs> I. Am.
2: Well, it's not like Kubrick, <coughs> that's for sure. I don't think it. was I mean, fun. The director didn't wear anybody down. He <laughs> <laughs> wore me down, watching it. Thought yeah, it was, what did you think, Simon? You know, you didn't tell me anything about it. Yeah, I
1: it. Uh, coming to it as a fan and having known these characters for literally thirty, forty years of my life, it, I found it quite, quite affecting.
3: Oh, I was wondering where you were going to go. No, that.
1: no, I found it quite affecting, and um, and certainly, did you crying. No, no. Should we be a bit spoiler No, free? because I know my Marvel comics, and I know that when things happen to characters, it isn't necessarily. Forever, Should we be so. a bit spoiler No, this free? is the last thing we're doing
0: on the podcast from this point now. If you've not seen Infinity War and you don't want to know what happens, ten. turn this podcast off. There's not going to be anything else after Infinity War, and we are going to talk spoilers because I don't care. Excellent. <laughs>
2: Excellent.
1: Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I think equally, I think we've just got got to know these characters over the ten years. Yeah. of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and therefore you you become attached to them. So when you see stuff happen to them like that, it's pretty... Not harrowing, That's strong, but... It was quite harrowing, actually. The odd, the odd yeah, thing think is, think. and I've heard other people, oh,
3: really? other podcasts talk about this, but I felt at the same time, the people that... The characters that I felt bad for are the characters who survived the mm. end of Infinity War, because you know that... Once they've killed off they killed off Spider Man. Yeah. They killed off like five, sevens, five sevenths of Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Dr. Strange. Nick Fury at the end. Nick Fury. But but particularly Guardians of the Galaxy and Spider Man, you know are gonna come back. So you know yeah, that Panther be, you know he's have, coming back. That Panther has to come back because yeah. the first film was so successful. Yeah. So it's the characters like Iron Man. Yeah, and Captain America, you know that they're in trouble in the next film. Yeah, because it's be. going to be about them, and it, it will, will be, be that. Yeah, yeah. So you know the survive. So you're watching the characters, survive. So well, watch just, the characters the two who survive. Contracts aren't
1: renewing, aren't they? Yeah, so, yeah. 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 So it's
3: the characters who survive are the ones oddly that I felt more <laughs> affected by. <laughs> Although the death of Spider Man was quite moving. <laughs> that was they did it. That, that, that was, was really that was hard, fun. wasn't it? Yeah,
1: fifteen year old kid. Yeah, because he's that young in in this movie, in yeah. these movies. Yeah. I'll lend you Spider Man Homecoming. It's great, man. Yeah. It
2: is great film. Yeah, really One fun. day
1: I'll get. It. I mean, I don't avoid these films. I just,
0: I just, no. I just haven't got round to them. No, well, it's now like it's, a, not, in a, it's <laughs> not like an epic TV
3: series. <laughs> yeah, that you have to, but you don't have to watch it all. It's like for, there's about yeah. fifteen movies now or more, even
0: eighteen. 18. What, 18 what I
1: find <laughs> more,
0: um, yeah, I'm just just to finish my train Sorry, of thought God. is, in order to get to this point, oh, yeah. I. Having seen three of them, I'd have to watch another 14 to get to this movie. And it's just, where yeah. are the hours going? Well, it from?
2: depends on what you think. Because if you watch things like the first Thor, the first Iron Man, the first Captain America, they were really good entry films to the, to the universe. You could probably miss their middle ones and skip to But the, you know
0: what I mean? I couldn't watch this film without watching at least some of the others. Yeah, yeah definitely.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a good ride. It's oh, yeah. And ride. I look They're forward really to one day films. doing still, it. It's just yeah. I haven't yet. I still
3: preferred... Or Ragnarok. To this film. Because I like the jokes now. I like the comedy the comedy Marvel films. I like the Guardians yeah. of the yeah. Galaxy.
2: Didn't wasn't the Guardians of the Galaxy director for this one or part of this one? Because no, the humour no, no, was no. exactly the
1: same. It wasn't yeah, like it was the Galaxy and it's the Or was it the writer? Brothers. I think what it's they call it. Um, so uh, the same director, yeah, as Civil War yeah, and Winter right. Soldier. Yeah. But
2: what about the dialogue? Because okay. the dialogue felt like it be know, else could be. But I think they it.
3: picked up the. They so there are bits in this film and tonally it kind of worked, but you could see that they were moving to different sorts of humor. So you had the Guardians the, the Drax stuff. Yeah. yeah. It was really funny. Really, I really yeah. enjoyed it, yeah. but I wanted more of that. And also there's bits of the Taiko Waikiki Stuff, oh, yeah. <clears throat> and that worked. But there's also they go back to kind of Joss Whedon stuff with Ooh. with Tony Stark, and then they go back to the more serious stuff as well. So they kind of move around. And you were talking about ages ago, this, the the latest Star Star Wars film, Star Trek, Star Wars film, being kind of having having odd moments of humor. Mm. Well, that's exactly what happened in this. It's sort of veered, but because it was sort of so clearly defined. In packages of characters, I think it worked. Mm. Well, I thought it worked with Star Trek, uh, Star Wars, but here it was less. It was less sort of obvious.
2: I was amazed how it actually worked so well because it is a massive film. It was it was a was massive. Characters. How many characters were in this film? But 30. to be honest, ridiculous.
0: You're talking about in in that respect. You're essentially saying this is a bridge too far of the Marvel world. Yeah, because yeah. a bridge too yeah. far is a film with thirty lead characters mm. and you have a fifteen minute ten, fifteen minute story for each one. That essentially is what's going on here, is it
2: not? Yeah. Mm. Kind of yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, it is. But they do kind of cross over quite nicely. Mm.
1: Um, yeah, and so what do that, in the other as well. Yeah. You don't feel yeah. any any kind of underplay, do you?
2: No, not at all. I mean when you, you get You could things say Black like, Panther doesn't quite get enough. No no but you become well, kind of okay. does, doesn't I it? The whole you get there's a whole massive mm. time you know, twenty twenty five, thirty minutes in Wakanda mm. and you bring Guardians of the Galaxy into it and Rocket a Raccoon standing there, and then Thor turns up and you think, This is great. I think <laughs> Cap- Captain, Captain America doesn't
3: get a great deal. But I think the next film's going to be about one Song, and, their Swan song yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I suspect At least with them as Captain America, so somebody else will take on the mantle, right? yeah. exactly as yeah. it does in the comics. Yeah. But what I find most profound about these these films is that and it's something, again, that DC don't get, is this idea that it's the idea of the character that's the most important thing. So it doesn't matter cosmetically what do they do to these characters. And it's always nice when they look like they do in the comics, mm. but a lot of the time they don't. But it's to get that core idea, which they've got absolutely nailed with Spider-Man now. Mm. Even though it's slightly different, they made Aunt May you know quite young now, and and stuff like that, and there's little shifts like that, but, but they you still. That that's not the important part. Of it. It's not the important part Spiderman. So there's, there's this real profound experience on the cinema screen, as you did as a child watching, reading the comics. And some people, you know, still read them. Mm-hmm. But another thing is that one thing I used to love was the team up comics. And you would get one comic running alongside another. All of a sudden, characters from this one would be here in that one, and they'd meet up. I just duff- love it when Mickey Mouse met Daffy Duck. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but it's the weirdly it's the same <laughs> so, yeah. thing. Where's it's the same Donald Duck. Because so, you want to know how they react, you know, <laughs> yeah. how they <clears> react <throat> yeah, to each other and how they they
3: interplay. You also have to earn that, which is DC haven't done. So if you watch just watch Justice League, I thought the same thing. Yeah, I thought dog. They're trying to get up there with the Avengers mm. and they haven't... Yeah. and the, But they hadn't... Yeah. So with the DC one, with Justice League, they'd had a failed attempt with Batman versus Superman, which mm. didn't work. They'd had one good film with Wonder, Wonder Woman. Woman yeah. But that's it. Mm. They just had one good film. Mm. But with this one, they had, what, 15 really good films mm. and maybe two that were a bit sniffy.
2: I thought they were all good. They're just... They're, they're just... Everything's fantastic in this universe, whereas some films are good. Good mm. to fantastic, whereas DC seems to have really, really poor to okay. One to... Is the good one, isn't it? Uh, oh, it's okay, yeah. yeah, it's okay. Good to okay. But
1: all <laughs> I was going to say was that when you got to this stage with these films, is then all of a sudden you've got Thor thrown in with the Guardians of the Galaxy, and the next thing you realise is that Thor and Rocket Raccoon are really getting on with each other, yeah. and it's just like... it's just. <laughs> It sounds ridiculous saying these things, <laughs> mm. but two really strong, fully formed characters mm. completely bouncing off each other. Yeah, yeah. And they're and making wonderful. One it thing I brilliant. like about
3: Marvel films is it's not a consistent universe because you've got. I really liked Iron Man, the original Iron Man, because yeah. it was sort of it was that kind of Still real, the real sort of, Marvel of steel films. technology. Yeah. And you felt that there was real substance and reality behind it. Mm. And I was thinking, well, how can they do Thor? that works in this same universe. Mm. And then Thor happened. And so they built these different tones of, or different styles of universes. Mm. And and actually they managed to make them work together by, so Thor works with Iron Man because because it's been built up with Guardians of the Galaxy and that sort of provides a connective tissue Mm. between the two
1: universes. It's It's crazy. The impression I get is that they've, given fairly loose rein to the directors to create yeah. their own little bubbles haven't they yeah and I think they've been a fairly tight with story which is why um what's his face from space uh, Edgar Wright moved yeah. on because I think that was issues about story wasn't it oh the yeah which yeah. still ended up being a brilliant movie yeah. which I was amazed at yeah. but um They've
0: called this one
1: just Infinity War, haven't they? Well, yeah, the it was Infinity, be Infinity War, War part yeah. one, parts one and two, wasn't it? The two... So
0: is the next one going to be called something else? It's going to be called Endgame, I think.
2: Oh, is it? Okay. I think so. How do you know that? No one's released the title yet. Have they not? No. I thought they have.
1: No. no. Oh, they might have. They did say... They, they probably me... will have by I've, the time Either, the either it's going to be called out.
2: Endgame
3: or I've seen a fan poster. Well, it makes sense. <laughs> well, it makes sense. It's in yeah. the yeah. dialogue, is it?
2: Apparently they're not releasing it because narratively it gives something away. So okay. they're waiting for people to watch this film and then they're going to release the, the proper title. The Horrible Death of Tony Stark. The Dark <laughs> Dimension. Endgame's yeah. pretty
1: dull. It is, And it's mentioned in the dialogue. That's strange, doesn't it? Yeah. This isn't Before he really? cops it. <laughs> well, you spoiled <laughs> that one for
0: <though>, me.
3: Eh? <laughs> yeah, but he cops it. They, <laughs> yeah, die. Yeah, everybody. they all, I mean, all die. <laughs> they, they, all all, die whole, all they all die. They all die a Moffat death. Half, half, the, the yes, universe, half
1: the universe dies. So, this is the bad guy, Thanos, is going a... Well, it's not so much a Hitler figure, but... It's a narcissist. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And his idea for making the world prosperous, uh, making the universe prosperous, is to get rid of half the people. So, mm. Which he does. So there's so much more <laughs> for everyone else. So at the end of the film, and it's, everybody's it's sitting there crying. like picking trying. straws. It's, everything's random. So, yeah, 50% of all living things just... Well if you haven't seen it yet and you're still listening at this point it serves
2: you (laughs) right. (laughs) I did say. But what do you think do you know where they all are the people? Where they all are? Yeah. Well they're obviously not dead because they're coming back. No I've not read the comics so no. So I read. I I know nothing but obviously Doctor
3: Strange has a plan because he gave the what is it the time stone away knowing something about the future because Mm. he's already looked at all the potential futures. So That's he right. didn't do that to Thanos. He just see. gave it away. Yeah. It might involve
1: Ant-Man because Ant-Man comes with this kind of quantum universe. It's small enough. So that it. might yeah. involve Ah uh, yeah, but then are we going to say the easter egg right at the end of the credits because it was right at the end. Did I miss it? I didn't oh, stay. did you not it. stay?
3: No. Oh, no, no, uh, really? Captain Marvel. Yeah, yeah. Is that the uh, yeah, well, Captain, found Ni- out? Ni- Captain Ni- I don't Fury, like. I don't Sam like. Jackson. I don't like the post-credit sequences. Because <laughs> I, I don't want to say, I actually thought they weren't no. going to have one in this, for no. this one, because I thought, well, maybe they just won't, won't because, be the, because it's the end to the That's hander. what I thought, actually. And so I left before the very, very end. But I don't like staying until the end of the, I like getting out as quickly as possible, and, you know, avoiding the rush. But there's something yeah. very sort of un-British about sitting there. You, you don't, don't avoid the rush, though, this? do you? Because no. everybody gets gone. out of that yeah. point, yeah. don't they? But now I watch other films that couldn't possibly have it. I watched a film called Journeyman, which is a sort of a gritty British film about a boxer, thinking, oh, I wonder if this has got an end credit sequence. <laughs> well, just building up to a to a sequel. But no, I missed that one. Right, final thoughts
2: then. Enjoyed it, we all did. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. I, I've got to see it again. I, there's so much in it, I can barely remember all of it. But um, yeah. As... It's, it's a miracle it works as well as it does. Yeah. If you ask me, yeah. well. it, it's got to be a ten out of ten because it it works, and you wouldn't think when you have it on paper. How could this possibly work as a film? How could you get this right? And um, even though it's not the best Marvel film, I don't think. Like, I see I,
1: is Thanos as a CGI character performing. It's not bad at all. To, yeah. isn't it? I
2: thought
3: the ones dodgy CGI was a hotbuster. Yeah. There was a banner in the hotbuster armor, mm-hmm. and it didn't quite work for me. No. No. But it's mm, mm, mm. mm.
0: mm. something <laughs> <laughs> Right. Next week we'll talk about closing time. The penultimate in our series six run through. Okay. Until then I was Lee. I was Matt. I was Simon. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon.